it's the hardest kitchen I've ever worked in in my life, but I think anyone who is smart to stay there and keep their head down and work hard, it'll shape you and mold you and give you a skill set that you probably can't get anywhere else in this city. I think there I really grew and became confident in my skill set, and it was a lot of hard work, but I never once was like, oh my god, I don't want to do this. Like, it was hard, but I was like, oh, we're going to do this. One Mother's Day, we worked a 24-hour shift. We were so exhausted. We had thousands of cupcakes on order, and they were supposed to be like a raspberry poppy seed cupcake, and we forgot the poppy seeds in all of them. So we were just making it rain poppy seeds on top of the frosting, and we were just laughing because we're hysterical at this point. Hello and welcome to The Dine One Six, a food podcast about Sacramento where we talk to anyone working in the food industry to take you behind the scenes of your favorite dining experiences in town. I'm your host, Max Connor, joined by my co-host, Neil Little. Neil, how's your summer going, man? It's going well. For those of you that know, I had back surgery a few months ago, so I am slowly progressing towards getting back to normal. Max, you actually made a comment the other day I kind of had to laugh about. The entire time you've known me, I have been injured. And that didn't dawn on me until you said that. So for those of you who listened and those who know, I blew up my Achilles last year and hurt my back this year. So I'm just kind of getting back to normal. And I, I just want to thank everyone out there for like allowing your patience as we have tried to be consistent, but we are just consistently inconsistent right now, but we're working towards it. And we just want to say thank you to everyone who has continued to listen to us. That's right. Absolutely. We're getting some great feedback on our episodes, which is why we're going to really work to get more and more out more frequently. But we do have a guest I was really excited about today. Because for me personally, like I love to cook at home, but more than cooking at home, I love to bake at home. And that's the thing I do with my kids. That's the thing we all love to do together. I got into the sourdough craze, which I have maintained, you know, during COVID. I still have the same starter I started during COVID. I still bake a lot of sourdough, cooking pizzas now as well. But lots of cookies, Lots of pies, lots of cakes. Whenever there's a birthday, I, I bake the birthday cake typically. So to have a bona fide pastry star. Yeah, I was gonna I was just gonna say maybe you could even say superstar pastry chef from town on the show was really exciting. Neil, who do we have today? Today we have Allison Clevenger joining us on the show. Allison is one of those people in the restaurant industry that she and I had met maybe two or three times but we had like 35 friends in common who all said we would get along so i was really excited to get her on here and finally you know put names to places and people to faces and kind of get to know her and and expand my friend circle and that's definitely what happened yeah and for those who haven't heard her name she has worked under the banner of some of the most famous places in sacramento most notably ginger elizabeth she was hired when ginger was making chocolates in her kitchen which Allison was helping do before the L Street location even opened. And she also was the head pastry chef for the Sellens Group for four years. And she helped reopen the cult favorite Dobot Donuts just about six months ago. She's since left there. She's looking for her next adventure. But we had a great time talking all things pastry, getting off on some fun tangents as well. She is a really cool, really fun person, and we really enjoyed this interview. So we can't wait to bring it to you right now. Before we get to the episode, just a couple quick notes. This episode has a little bit of explicit language, not very much, but just a heads up in case you're listening with kids in the car. Also, I was sick when we did this recording, so I wasn't in studio. I'm not going to get too much into the weeds, but you may notice there's a few bits here and there where the audio might sound a little funny for me, and that's why it's because I wasn't in the studio. I was on Zoom. 
Allison Clevenger, thank you for joining us on the Diamond Stick. We're very excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Cool. So let's just jump into the beginning here. How was food a part of your childhood and when did you fall in love with it? Oh man, I grew up in a big Italian family and every holiday was about food. And every time I went to my grandparents' house, who they were my best friends, everything was food related. Like, what do you want to eat for lunch, breakfast, dinner, snacks? It was very part of our normal day-to-day life. And I just, yeah, I, my whole family, like gathering for holidays, like looking back at my childhood, like Easter's and Christmas and how we would always rotate whose house we went to. But like the fact that all of my cousins were there and there was a lot of us and like my aunts, my mom's one of five girls. So we had a pretty big family. That's a fun big family to have. You know, it's funny. We've interviewed a lot of chefs and like almost everyone has been Italian. I don't know how we have somehow found almost every Italian chef in town. Oh yeah. Italian families and Sunday night dinners. That's definitely, we're discovering that's a thing. And those roots in that community helping you fall in love with food seems to happen a lot. So what was the connection back to Italy? Were your grandparents first generation or how tied were they still to the old country? My great grandma was born in Calabria. And then they moved here when she was in her mid-20s, I think. And so my grandmother was born in America, but very intense Italian family. Didn't know, like, they spoke Italian, and I don't know. They moved to San Jose. I don't even know what year it was. Um, But we grew up, like, close to the Little Italy area in San Jose, so it was very much, like full force around us. And then as I slowly got older, the neighbor turned more Hispanic. And one of the first like CDs I ever had, or like cassette tapes, I guess, because that's how old I am, was Selena in Spanish. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I remember that floating around as well. What kind of food was being cooked? Like, were there any specific dishes you recall? My aunts kind of ventured out and dabbled in a little bit of everything, but we always had some sort of pasta, no matter what. Um, I remember as my grandma got older, she used to try to make like meatloaf and it was atrocious. And I was like, what is this? So my grandpa took over cooking and yeah, his, he was stellar. He used to make me spaghetti all the time. That man would eat a pound of pasta every day for lunch and would be fit as a fiddle. Good for him. I wish I could do that. No, I don't know how he did it. He was well over six feet tall and like was not overweight at all in his late eighties, early nineties. Good for him. I strive for those goals. So when did you know food was going to be a part of your future and you wanted to have it as a part of your career? I didn't really know it. I had always just worked in food in high school and I was getting ready to graduate. And apparently I just went to a shitty high school because they never were like, hey, here's a career counselor. What do you want to do with your life? And my mom one day was like, so are we going to talk about you going to culinary school or what? And I was like, no, I don't. I don't know. What do you mean? What? And she was like, well, you haven't really mentioned anything else that you want to do. So we kind of talked about it. I guess I did want to go to culinary school. And we looked at Scottsdale Culinary Institute. And it was about like, at the time, I think like 80 grand. And who could afford that? So that didn't happen. And then my grandpa passed away a few months later and left my parents some money. And a school in Oregon randomly sent us out like a brochure And my mom's like, we're going to go tour this. And I went and toured. We didn't even get to tour it. So she signed me up. She paid for it with the money that was left to my grandpa. And we drove to Oregon in two different cars full of all of my stuff. And I didn't know that in Oregon you weren't allowed to, like, pump your own gas. And so we pull into this little hillbilly town called Coos Bay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And this guy comes out 
in overalls without a shirt on, just a very large man, and starts pumping my gas. And my mom's in the car in front of me laughing, and I'm sobbing in the front seat of my car. And just went on campus, met my roommates right there for the first time, went from Arizona to Oregon. So did your mom even stop or just kind of like push you out the car on the way? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure she was glad to get rid of me for a while because I was a tyrant when I was a teenager. <laughs> Any fun stories about that? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Please. <Please. laughs> So you said you went to Coos Bay. That's the Oregon Culinary, Oregon Coast Culinary Institute. Mm -hmm. How was that? It was the only time since I was like 14 that I didn't have to work. And so I lived up the college experience. It was great. I mean, I messed around a lot and didn't go to class sometimes, but I would show up and like, it was just something that was like naturally inclined. Like I could just figure it out. So my instructor used to get really pissed at me because he'd be like, how do you know how to do this if you don't even show up for class? And like, I missed all of egg week. Because I was hungover. <laughs> and I showed up at the end for the final, and I was able to, like, make a creme brulee custard perfectly. And I was just like, okay, here you go. Good luck. Godspeed. <laughs> That's awesome. Ooh, creme brulee is my favorite desserts, too. It's so simple, but so good. I have such fond memories of college and of all of my friends. Less, like, the, the learning the food skill. I don't think I really applied myself with that until I started working at Ginger's. But for the most part, it was just kind of, like, getting a basic foundation of food and trying to figure out what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go from there. Was that two years, <laughs> two years up there? It was a year, it was an accelerated program. So it was year round and it was a little under a year and a half. And so where did you go from there? So from there I moved to Sacramento and I got a job. I got an internship at the bread store on J street back when they were still in their glory. And I was their only female bread baker. There was just two of us. The other guy was, his name was Kevin. And he had been there for years, and we did, like, 900 pounds of dough a day by hand. We didn't have machines. Like, we had a mixer, obviously, and something that we would shoot the dough through, and it would, like, pre-shape it, but we still had to shape it. No dividers, rounders, any of that stuff. And I remember one day the owner was up front talking with the a food writer from the Sack B, and he was watching me in the back work. We weren't open yet, and he came back and kind of just started talking to me and Asked if he could write an interview on me. And so that was the first press that I ever got in Sacramento. I was working at the bread store. It was about a 19-year-old baker and how, I don't know, my, my journey on getting there, I guess. And I just remember this little old couple came in and they had it laminated. And they just told me that my story was really inspiring to see young people working so hard. And they, I still have it. That's so cool. <laughs> I loved it. Was that internship what brought you to Sacramento? Yeah. I moved here with an ex-boyfriend. <laughs> Okay. But my aunts, my aunts lived here, so that was also the draw. And then all of my friends, childhood friends, lived in San Jose, so we were super close to that, too. Okay. So what got you into baking? You know, I mean, I, I think a lot of chefs go to culinary school, and the baking section or anything baking-wise or dessert-wise is like, no, thank you. And then there's the few in the special who decide, this is what I want to do, let's get into baking and pastry. So what pushed you that direction? A culinary tour to a slaughterhouse um, in high school. <laughs> in high school, my culinary instructor for home ec was super into knowing the food that we ate and where it came from and the sacrifice that was made for us. Her husband participated in 4-H too, so I think that's possibly why. So we mm -hmm. got to watch a pig and a cow being slaughtered, and then I didn't eat meat for about a year after that, and I said, F this, I'm going to go make some cakes. And yeah, it just kind of went from there. I was always, even though I was working on like the food side, because at the time 
I was working at the hospital in high school and I was doing like patient services where I made like the meals for certain dietary restrictions. And I was, so I was doing savory food, but everyone would always ask me to make them cakes and cupcakes and cookies. And I would do it mm. for like my coworkers. And then it just kind of naturally switched over to that. I liked it better than raw meat still grosses me out, but <laughs> trauma. Yeah. I just have always <laughs> been more inclined, I guess, to kind of pastry after that. What working at the bread store teaches. I mean, you can't, I mean, making that much bread dough on a daily basis is, I imagine that's a, a real crash course in kind of the science and feel of dough, particularly, you know, leavened dough. So what it what was that? When you first got there, was it was it hard or did you take to it pretty easily? The labor was hard. It was hard manual labor, but they had it down. They had been open for like 25 years at that point. So they had it down to a system of what worked for them. And they didn't do a lot of, well, they didn't do any high hydration sourdoughs like what people are doing right now. It was like traditional, like mm-hmm. firm, drier sourdoughs that had like the really thick crust and super tangy. And then we did a bunch of like rye breads and wheat breads and they bought frozen pastries that you thawed and baked off because they didn't have a way to make the pastries in house. So like one of the days of the week, I would do all of the muffin batters and like fillings and stuff like that. And then the rest, I would do bread. It was nice though, because I worked, they did four four days a week, 10 hours a day. So I had three days off when I was 19 and 20 and I loved it. Nice. But I was so good at my job that it only took me like seven hours to do a 10 hour shift. So when I came in at midnight to start my shift, I may have taken a nap on the flower bags <laughs> for like an hour because <laughs> I knew my time limit and what I could do. <laughs> but it was fun. That place, I have lots of wild stories of things that have happened there, but nothing I will discuss here. I just met like a big mixed bag of people there. We The front of the house always hired the most interesting people. And I've made some good friends that I still keep in contact with. I worked with then and it's fun memories. It was my first like real baking job. I remember some of the breakfast sandwiches they had there that were really, really good. They're massive. Yeah. I just remember the sandwiches, like you couldn't even bite it. <laughs> it, was, it was good for two meals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, where did you go after the bread store? Ginger's. So what was it like working for Ginger Elizabeth? What were some of the responsibilities you had and how did you grow there? Oh, man. I call this place my home. I started out like it was just her and I. I was her only employee. So customer came up and you're in the middle of making macarons. Guess what? You're going up front to help. And we really did it all. Like I scrubbed the bathrooms and made cookies and made macarons and moose cakes and helped guests and back like boxed and bagged millions of chocolates. It's just funny to see how, it's not funny. I mean, it's amazing to see how large her company is now versus like what it was when we started. Like the Enrober was in this tiny little room that's now like the prep room in the main L Street location. Like we used to sit there in that little corner and enrobe chocolates all day. But she was smart. She can turn a dime into a dollar and was very calculated with how she grew us. And I think it pushed me to see the business side of it because I had never seen the business side before. I had only seen the hard labor. So it was nice to see him go hand in hand. And like she would talk me through the decisions that she would make. And then eventually, once she trusted me to see that I had a brain in my head, like she asked for my opinion on things sometimes. Took a few years for me to really be able to speak like freely and be like, no, I think we should do this. But yeah, we really just grew together. I was there for 11 years and I just have great memories there. My kids have been in there in hairnets. Her kids have been in there in hairnets. I've worn her kids on front packs. I weighed my kids in hotel pans there. 
(laughs) (laughs) It's just home. It's the hardest fucking kitchen I've ever worked in in my life, but I think anyone who is smart to stay there and keep their head down and work hard, it'll shape you and mold you and give you a skill set that you probably can't get anywhere else in this city. I think there I really grew and became confident in my skill set, and it was a lot of hard work, but I never once was like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. Like, it was hard, but I was like, oh, we're going to do this. One Mother's Day, we worked a 24-hour shift. Dang. We were so exhausted. We had thousands of cupcakes on order, and there was supposed to be like a raspberry poppy seed cupcake, and we forgot the poppy seeds in all of them. So we were just making it rain poppy seeds on top of the frosting, and we were just laughing because we're hysterical at this point. <laughs> it was like an hour before opening, and then I was like, okay, I'm leaving. It was like the time to go home. And then she's like, are you coming back? And I was like, no, I am not coming back. But yeah, I just, I think gingers shaped me into the skills that I have now. I don't think I could have gotten where I was today without that. Yeah, 11 years, that is a long time. I gave her all of my youth. (laughs) I tell her all the time. She knows. That's a long time in restaurant time. I feel like even two and three years at a restaurant is an eternity, but 11 is... It was 10 and a half. No, no, you can count that. That's that's closer to 20 than not. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Were you there when... How long have they had the macaron ice cream sandwich? Does that like go? Does that go way back? Yeah, it goes back to when we were at L Street, and we used to have like this little tiny tabletop ice cream spinner where we could only do like two quarts at a time, and we would spin the ice cream and stuff them in the shelves, and all we had was a reach and freezer, so they wouldn't freeze properly, and they'd start melting, mm-hmm. and we'd all cry a little bit. <laughs> but once we moved into the warehouse, yeah, we got like a blast freezer, and we were able to, and like a real cold, a clean room, so you could make the ice cream in, and we were able to like knock out volumes of stellar things was it like a magical moment when that was developed because it was for me the first time i ate one i was like i don't understand why this hasn't been a thing like a macaron is the perfect vessel for an ice cream sandwich way better than a cookie or anything else where it just squirts out or kind of goes all over the place yeah we i think we did them for like at least two years after we opened so i remember the first time she gave me a macaron it's when we were working out of her apartment before we even opened And I had, we'd never made them in culinary school because they weren't a big thing at that point. Or maybe I just missed school that week. I don't know. And And she handed me one and she's like, here, try this. It's a almond macaron. And I was like, a what? She said it French. So it's not macaron. And uh, I tried it and I just remember the texture and like sitting there putting away like caramel truffles and like eating this cookie. And it was just so... The texture and the aroma and the flavor, like it was life changing. And I remember asking her if she had more, and she's like, "Yes, but I have to save them for Tom, so you can't have them." <laughs> Tom's her husband. <laughs> and when she was like, when we started out, we only had two macaron flavors: chocolate and vanilla. And then the salted caramel one came along shortly after, and those were like our three staples. And from there, we just grew it. And then she started talking about doing an ice cream with it. And we tried like scooping the ice cream in it and sandwiching them. And the cookies were so fragile they would break. We had lots of trial and error. And finally, when we moved into, like, the warehouse, we were really able to, like, nail them and fine-tune them to the point of where she was happy. But we always, at least every few months, would, like, sit down, eat them, analyze them. How can we make them better? Like, she's never happy with anything, which is probably why it's so ingrained in my brain. But it's always, like, how can we make this better? How can we do better? Like, we've changed the salted caramel cookie when I was there at least ten times. 
So it's just always evolution for her, which also is part of my OCD anxiety self. That was a great story. I enjoyed that. What was the business at that time? How small was it? And how much, when did you leave? Did you leave before the patisserie opened on J Street? Or before were you there when she opened the spot in San Francisco that ultimately she ended up not keeping? What was the scale of the business at the time you were there? I helped open up San Francisco. I was there on opening day. And she had opened up San Francisco. So we had the warehouse, the L Street location in San Francisco. And the patisserie wasn't even a thought in her mind at that point. Mm. And I ultimately left because I wanted to go work in pastries and get more experience on that. Oh, joke's on me. Because <laughs> she was like, well, I'm never, I don't want to open a patisserie, so I can't promise you that. So then I was like, okay. Mm. And then now she has on a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> she knows. She knows I tell her all the time. I was like, I hate you. Yeah. Now I just go in and buy them. I have spent many a dollar at that location. Who hasn't? Yeah, Best me too. Best breakfast sandwich in town. 100%. And then I end up buying four other things that I had no intention of buying every time I walk in there. Oh, yeah. The monkey bread. I'm just going to get a breakfast sandwich, and then I'm like, oh, what's this? All right, Ginger. If you're listening to this, I need to, I need to have a little chat with you here. You broke my heart a little bit. That breakfast sandwich you had there was absolutely perfection. The tomato chutney on the homemade English muffin with this, with the one thing I respect the most, the hash brown and oh, the, the sausage patty. You knew what you were doing there, and I could not love you more for it. But I must sadly say it has since left the menu. But as they said in the Sandlot, Heroes live forever, but legends never die. And that sandwich is a legend. <laughs> now, the one thing I will tell you is keep your eyes peeled and your ears up. If she brings that thing back for a, for a special, trust me, you will see me there. I will bring Max with me. But if you ever hear about it, come down and get that breakfast sandwich. So, Ginger, if you're listening, and I hope you are, if you would love to come on our podcast and explain your rationale and everything that you do so beautifully and with such delectable treats, we would love to have you on. So please reach out to Allison and let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Ginger's obviously a brilliant pastry chef. She's even more obviously a brilliant businesswoman with everything she's done over at Ginger Elizabeth's. So she knows what she's doing. But that doesn't take away my personal pain in any way, shape, or form that I can't get that sandwich today. But like you said, I'm sure we'll see it on the occasional special. So as Allison said, she really wanted to get more experience baking high-end pastry. And at the time, Ginger Elizabeth was more of a chocolate, macaron, and ice cream shop. So she eventually left to go out and work in the world of high-end pastry. She ended up at the Grange for about 10 months, which unfortunately for her was not a great experience. We won't go into it too much, but let's just say that after 11 years of working with her best friend in a woman-owned business, she entered a very masculine-dominated hotel kitchen and catering company, and she told us some pretty disturbing stories of her time there. But she then moved on to the Sellens Group, where she trained under their head pastry chef, who eventually left during COVID, and she became the head pastry chef of the Sellens Group, making pastries for the markets, for Ella, for the kitchen, and Oboes, for a number of years, almost four years. And she said she had a great experience with them. She said it was an amazing landing spot during COVID, that they treated everyone really well. And she learned a ton getting to make those high-end desserts for places like Ella in the Kitchen. Eventually, the Kitchen got their own in-house pastry chef, but Allison continued making all the pastries for the other restaurants in the markets. She said one of the benefits of working with the Sellens Group was getting to learn how to work with different personalities. 
and to understand what it was like to work in a little bit more of a corporate kitchen setting where you have lots of people critiquing your dishes and your ideas. So who had the creative control on what you guys were making? or did that, Was that you or did that come from up top? Ownership was like luckily pretty like fluid with things. So we did menu changes based on the season and for the markets and cafes, we would do tastings and sit down and like these are what I'm thinking. And then they give your feedback and you take it and leave it. And like this idea is yes, this idea is no. I think Selens really pushed me more like business wise than like creativity wise, but it did teach me how to work with certain personalities better. Chefs are fragile ego little egotistical things at times so when you get too many of them in a room with opinions it can be hard to navigate those waters so really just like trying to bite my tongue because I'm Italian and I can't plus I think being the only woman on like the higher executive chef team was kind of hard being surrounded by a bunch of males and being like this is my idea this is what I want where when I came from a woman power team I like, I hate to throw in the, like, sexist card, but, it like, I do feel like women's voices are muted in this industry, especially when presenting to a room full of men. So me being headstrong and demanding can be a bit hard for people at times to accept. <laughs> but I think, I think Selen's taught me, like, Randall was big on dropping off halls of fruit and not telling anyone and being like, here you go, here's my market hall, make something with it. And we're like, but Randall, we don't do specials. This is your restaurant. This is your restaurant. We know we don't do specials at Selen. So then, like, figuring out how I could use that at Ella. Like, one time he dropped off mountains of melons. And I was like, okay, (laughs) sorbet? I don't know what to do with this right now. So just kind of being creative with that, what I could make with some market halls. And really, the Grange, too, like, seasonality at the Grange and Selen's as far as, like, Ella. That was, it was, like, we worked with seasonal ingredients at Ginger's because we used to go from the farmers and pick up the stuff. But, like... We would preserve it so you could use it year-round, whereas, like, fresh fruit, it's this window, and take it or leave it, and you miss that moment. So really Mm. focusing on that and, like, what's coming up and how are we going to use it kind of changed my brain a little bit. That was a fantastic answer. I I love everything you said there, and I think you hit a few things on the nail head that a lot of people need to hear, like women's voices need to be listened to more in this economy. (laughs) No, they're going to love you for it. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean – 100% 100% that needs to be said. That was my, my thought was like coming from Ginger Elizabeth's and getting to be raised in a woman-owned business, someone he became friends with, the shock factor of then suddenly getting thrown into the regular culinary world, which is unfortunately overly male-dominated, white male for that matter, you know, and just... <laughs> <laughs> I'm married to a white male, I can say oh, that. Oh, no, I, I, he and I say it all the time. Like, it's nothing new here. When I found out I was having two boys... Well, with my first one, I cried, and the nurse was like, I'll just give you guys a minute. I've made it my mission that I will not raise white males that have toxic masculinity. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I've got one boy, and thank goodness he's sandwiched between two girls. So it's like his entire life has been, you know, Shopkins and little pet shops and all the, you know, all the girl stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, it seems to make a difference. I mean, he is a really kind, considerate little boy. And you can see the little bit of a shift. He's in kindergarten, a year in kindergarten, hanging out with more boys, some of the stuff he comes home home with. And we're just like, no, we're not playing this boys being boys roughhouse. It's like roughhousing is fine, and he gets worked by his nine-year-old sister. But it's like, (laughs) you know, 
Yeah, it's, we're not playing with this, you know, it's fine for boys to just be turds because they're boys. It's like, no, you need to be kind, period, first and foremost. So, yeah. anyway. My son yesterday asked me if we could have another baby. And I was like, well, that won't happen. We're sorry. And he goes, why not? And I was like, dad had surgery. <laughs> and he was like, but you didn't. And my husband goes, what the heck? Said, whoa, whoa, easy here. <laughs> and I was like, oh, not happening. Sorry. I started getting the twinkle in my eye. I was like, let's try for a girl. And my husband was like, no, I'm done. <laughs> I'm We're done. 0 for 2. <laughs> yeah. Let's bring it back to food here. Oh, what do you love about being a chef in Sacramento? Man, we're surrounded by amazing food, and I know everyone says that answer, and it's lame, but it's true. I think I, like, growing up in San Jose, I don't ever remember, like, food being such a big focal point, like, where it came from. But when I came here after college, the farm-to-fork movement was just starting to gain traction, and to see how much it has grown thanks to like Randall Sellen and Patrick Mulvaney, like they've paved the way for a lot of us. It's amazing. And then just to see the farmers involved and like seeing the fight to get farm workers better pay. We still have a long way to go, but I do think we're slowly working our way there, but really everything we eat comes from the earth and people have to pick it and tend to it. So it's just a circle to make sure that we all have to take care of each other. And I think seeing that, Makes me incredibly proud. What a fantastic answer. I love that. Yeah. I think people, for how, you know, especially it's the hot topic these days of, you know, artificial intelligence and people's jobs. It's like, I don't think people really realize just how many things have to be harvested and produced still by human beings. There just aren't that many automated processes for picking fruit and picking vegetables. And, you know, there's a lot of people under really terrible conditions get brought to pick all that amazing fruit you get to eat or you know dessert you get to eat at the restaurant you go to in sacramento so yeah i love that you brought that up and that sacramento's the good chefs in town really connect to the farms and are doing what they can to yeah like you said make the whole life cycle as good as it can be so yeah i was friends with suzanne from del rio farms and we used to go to her farm all the time at ginger's and bring my kids and ginger's kids and they'd go play with the goats and stuff but seeing like her farming and how she did it too was always impressive and fun to watch and i don't know i just think we as humans need to remember that we all have to take care of each other at the end of the day one of the things i've really gotten to notice while interviewing various people from the restaurant industry on this podcast is just not only are they incredible chefs but they're also incredible humans too they tend to go above and beyond on everything they do, but and not just for the customer, but for the people they work with. And for example, the farms around them. Like I love how much Allison worked with the different farms around the area and brought her boys to learn about it and just develop those connections and relationships with people that will keep going beyond whatever restaurant she works in at whatever point in time. Absolutely. I mean, it's every chef should really understand the life cycle, as I think most do, particularly in Sacramento, because we're so close to all the agriculture. But every diner should, too. We talked about it in that segment. I won't rehash it, but it's really important to understand how that food gets to your plate. Anyway, so back into regular food stuff. Allison next got to relaunch a cult favorite in Sacramento, which was Dobot Donuts. 
She was actually recruited by Mike Tiemann, who's a well-known chef in town, who was the consultant on the project and bringing it back. And he asked her if she wanted to come on to help open it. And when she said yes, she had a week and a half to get this place open, this place that had a social media following. They had a waiting list of people. They started their social media handles and had a waiting list in a newsletter that said, we'll let you know when we're going to open. So there were people lined up virtually months before it opened. She got a week and a half to get her team together, get the recipes rocking, and open the doors. And as you'll hear, it was as chaotic as you might imagine under those circumstances. We didn't have enough staff when we first opened for the volume of people. It was crazy. We had the line snaked around inside the building and out the door, and we were selling out by like 8.30 in the morning, and we were making holy cow hundreds of donuts. I think one day we made like 500 and we sold out by nine. Wow. People were just like, I want five dozen. And so eventually I was like, we have to limit it. Like you guys can only get six. Wow. That's a lot of donuts at one time. Yeah, it hurt. And then once it, of course, once it died off, we figured out a better rhythm and structure for it all because we didn't have time to practice and figure it out. So hindsight's always 2020 trial by fire. (laughs) It definitely (laughs) was, but it was fun. Like, opening that and the team that we had like it was great it was just tight pinch but we pulled through and I was really proud of my staff and my team and what we were able to achieve with what we had and despite some angry Yelp reviews and stuff from people but you know oh Yelp now what's it like opening up a restaurant that has like a previous following borderline cults-ish as to opening up the new one like did you follow all the same recipes and designs did you kind of go your own route or how did you manage that so the entire menu changed the week before I started. I think when they realized the space, because we share a space with Buffalo Pizza and they're the key anchor tenants. So they have the majority of the space in there. And then once we got all of the equipment in the empty building, I think they realized that the actual workspace that we had wasn't big enough to do what they wanted. So we did a quick pivot and shifted because there was supposed to be like a whole hot food line, like grab and go cold sandwiches, the works. Um, but it didn't work with the space that we had. So we kind of changed it to just pastries and donuts. And then a few months after that, we added the sandwiches. And once we were able to figure out a rhythm and a flow and like standard pars, but I changed everything. (laughs) I don't know. I just nothing. One of my old coworkers from the Grange, her name's Christy. She was like, I can't just look at a recipe anymore and be like, oh, that'll do. She's like, you've ruined me. And I blame Ginger for this because someone will hand me a recipe and I'll be like, okay, let's do it. And then I rework it at least five to ten times before I'm happy with it. Nothing is ever good enough for me. And that includes things that I do for myself. So I'm just constantly pushing myself to try to do better. And I didn't know a lot about vegan ingredients when I – I actually knew nothing. I won't lie. Like, I worked with Zanzibar gum a little bit and some of the weird gels and stuff. But for the most part, I had no clue what I was doing. So – I kind of one day just had to take a step back and be like, hey, you don't need to use all these crazy weird ingredients that people use to make it vegan. Like a dough is a dough. What can be a substitute? Or even like some doughs are just straight water and flour and salt and sugar. So just trying to figure it out from there and testing it. Because like the initial dough had potatoes in it and it tasted like fried mashed potatoes. Not that that's a bad thing, (laughs) but it was supposed to be sweet. So it was just a little bit of reworking in the time that I could find. Um, I did a lot of testing at home, too. My kids were happy as hell. (laughs) (laughs) So what are some of the things you found that work best in vegan baking? Because I know it seems like 
sometimes, like you said, sometimes a dough is just a dough, and then sometimes one ingredient works better in one recipe, and then suddenly you try it in another recipe, it doesn't work as well. So how much trial and error was that at Dobot? How much was at home? And like, what, what are some of the things you found worked the best? Or what are some of your favorite recipes you guys developed, I guess? So I pretty much have just taken a step back. And I think after being at Ella, I was like, how can I make this bougie? And like, super pretty. And I like dropped like mind blowing. And I had to kind of take a step back and be like, I'm not doing plated desserts anymore. I'm doing doughs. And so I just tried to backtrack a little and keep it more on the simple side. Classics are classics for a reason. And simple is not boring. So figuring out from there, like I just ditched the whole potato dough recipe and just kind of did a basic dough. And then I was able to sub out like vegan butter is pretty good, uh, depending on the brand that you get. So I was able to just like sub that out with things pretty easily. But some of the dairy subs were hard for me because they put gums in all of them. So then you have to like adjust what you're using as a thickener. And But not everything at Dobot, thank God, is vegan. It's about 50%. So I still got to play with regular ingredients too mm. and kind of go from there. But yeah, figuring out the egg substitute was always the hardest for me because eggs are magical and create so many various different purposes and textures like they're binding they're like leavening and to replace those with those gross like egg replacer things that you can buy at the grocery store is nasty so just trying to figure out how to get that texture without using any of that stuff so i use a lot of coconut milk use a lot of oat milk applesauce every once in a while but for the most part i don't try to use any crazy weird ingredients i don't like artificial things even artificial colors so i just try to keep it as like natural as it can be but still good it's my favorite line keep it simple stupid yeah what's the wildest donut you've made that actually worked mac and cheese fried donut <laughs> okay talk us through this now because i was not expecting that answer so and you, you had guys, that one quick too that you, was impressive do you guys ever go to track seven <laughs> when they did like their mac and cheese at the other side no. Okay, so they did like a hatch green chili mac Ooh. and cheese. Mm. And it was so good. So I reached out to Noah one day, who used to be their chef, after they closed. I was like, hey, kind of guide me on how to make that mac and cheese. And so he was like, well, like you can kind of do it like this and that. And he helped me out a little bit. And then from there, I just tested the mac and cheese first till I had it like what I needed it consistency-wise because you needed a little bit saucy. And then I stuffed it. So we used device IPA. Hatch green chilies, and like it was like cream cheese, gouda, Havarti, and cheddar. And then elbow noodles, and then you, you cook it, you let it cool, and then you can punch out like little discs, and then you stuff it inside a dough, and you fry that donut. And then when it comes out of the fryer, you brush it with toasted panko crumbs and Parmesan cheese on the top, and they were served warm. And there's oh, the moment, man. Max. There it is. And I'm starving. <laughs> Happens every episode at about the 40-minute point, and I'm starving. Yeah, they were pretty dang good. Yeah. Anything with mac and cheese, and I'm in. Yeah. I mean, we do, like, a everything but the bagel donut, and that's our staple mm-hmm. right now. And when I first said it, everyone was like, ew, that's weird. But if I took it off the menu, people would have my head. So when Scott came in, he brought us that donut. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but there was no mac yeah. and cheese donut in there, though. I would have remembered. Sorry yeah, those donuts. Oh, those donuts were outstanding. I don't think they made it home. Actually, I think I promised Lizzie one. It was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I can't even eat half of a one. So who are you outside of the kitchen? Outside of restaurants, like who are you? What do you like to do? What's your Saturday? What are your Sunday Mondays? Okay, so Sundays are like family day. Um, I have two young boys, they're three and six, and we kind of just like 
if we're not doing extracurricular activities for them, we just kind of go and do things like I love going to get coffee in the morning with all of them, even though it's not like the most calming situation, but it's like our routine. We used to have what we call muffin Fridays, Mm -hmm. where every Friday before school, I would take my kids to get muffins and coffee and then drop them off and stuff. So we just flip the days now. So we do it on Sundays. And then Mondays are my me day because my kids are in school and my husband works. So I go get massages. I don't know. I just like today I was running all over doing errands, but I just kind of chillax and let my day not be rushed. It's the one day of my week where I don't have like deadlines to run around and I don't have to do a million things for other people. So I just kind of do my own thing. I always find myself like doing at least one thing for myself in the day since I don't really get to do it throughout the rest of the week. But who am I outside of work? I love to go dancing. I don't get to do it very often. I did go out on Saturday for the first time in forever with a bunch of mid-20-year-olds. And um, we went to Lowbrow, which was an interesting experience. It was like house techno music. And I was like, I don't know how to dance to this, guys. And they were like, you just bounce. And they were like showing me, and I could not get with it. But then we went to Badlands. And that was great because there was like a lot of Bad Bunny and Beyonce playing. And I was like, okay, I can get down with this. I like gardening. I do woodworking. In our old house, we just moved recently to Folsom, but in our old house in East Sac, it needed all the work. It's like one day my husband came home and I ripped out the fireplace, and then I retiled it and rebuilt the frame. And then one day, or the day they gave us the keys to the house, he was moving in, and I went in with a sledgehammer and demoed our bathroom. And then I redid the whole tile in the bathroom and made it look, because it was that Pepto-Bismol pink, like, art deco (laughs) tile but I do enjoy woodworking and doing like projects around the house like if you ever hear a drill in the house it's me it's not my husband so you are very hands-on that's awesome yeah self-taught lots of YouTube videos YouTube's fantastic for that do it all the time everything yep all right so Allison rapid fire food related questions first one is what is your favorite cheap guilty pleasure Taco Bell oh give me your order Veggie Mexican pizza or bean burrito and onions. Very nice. What is your favorite dish to cook at home? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Taco Bell. (laughs) I mean, if I'm cooking, like, I'm trying to, I don't know, nothing. I don't want to cook at home. (laughs) No, that's a fair answer. I I get it. Yeah, 100%. If you feel like you have to bring a pastry to a party, or it's a friend you really love, so you're going to bring them something that you're going to make on your own time, what are are you making? What's your go-to? Simple, good treat you're going to bring. I love making tarts and galettes. Something yummy, just like an apple galette. Like, where the hell can you go? Other than Real Pie Company, where can you go to get a good galette? Yeah. No, Real Pie Company, that's my go-to. Yeah, I love their stuff. For someone going to Ginger Elizabeth, what would you what would you tell them they have to order? The patisserie or the chocolate shop? Yes. Okay, patisserie, queen them on. It's my favorite thing uh, ever. Okay, I don't know how to pronounce that. It's my favorite thing, too. I just have queen stayed quiet the enti- entire time. Queen Amon. Queen Amon. Okay, mm-hmm. it's the buttery spelling. and flaky and... It's a caramelized croissant. It's <sighs> amazing. Yes. They literally take croissant dough and on the last fold, cover the layer in sugar, and then you fold that in for your last fold. So it's like sugar with butter and sugar, and then you bake it in something that looks like a muffin tin, so that way the middle gets a pool of caramelized sugar inside of it when it bakes. You rip it open, and it like pours out. It's the best. The uh-huh. chocolate shop, I love the Meyer Lemon Bonbon or the Lavender Caramel. I'm sorry, the Meyer lemon... Bonbon? <laughs> it's French. It's a truffle. Gotcha. It just means like two bites. That's all you need. What's your favorite snack food? 
Ice cream. Flavor? Mm, vanilla. If you say it's plain, I'm going to fight you. I have a vanilla bean orchid tattooed on my rib cage. So vanilla bean. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Not like, just like white. Okay, let, let me let me Let's clarify this. Let's clarify this. It's not vanilla from a grocery store. Fair enough. Like it has to have real vanilla beans in it. If you get an ice cream like go to Ginger's next time they just have like plain vanilla ice cream. They do it every once in a while. It'll be life-changing. There's vanilla is such a magical component of food that when people call it plain, I want to fight them. <laughs> As she almost just did, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's it's just like chocolate. It goes through the same like lengthy fermentation. Anything fermented is good. Chocolate, cheese, wine, vanilla, beer. They're all magical. You bring up a very good point right there. I didn't even think about that thoroughly <laughs> until that just moment. I'm like, yeah, those are all yeah. fantastic things. Yeah, vanilla is my favorite. So Ginger Elizabeth, best best ice cream in town? Or what yeah. do you think? Yeah? Yeah. Well, Allison, thank you for coming in. It was a pleasure having you here and letting you telling your story. Thank you for having me. Neil, I just love this episode. I, I love all our episodes. I love interviewing all these people. But this one was really fun to sort of bounce around the topics, even a little bit away from food at times. And again, to hear someone talk about Queen Amon's and macaron ice cream sandwiches and bonbons, however you say that properly. Like, I, dude, that all day. I mean, I love hearing about hot food in the kitchen. But you get me ice cream and pastries, that is 100% my lane. And Allison was also just a really cool, really fun person. Do not forget about the vanilla ice cream. I got taken to task on that. Oh, so right. You almost, she didn't even give you a chance to say a bad word about vanilla. She just followed it up right away with don't say a bad word or we're going to fight. I loved her defense of it. Um, and you could really see that passion in her and, and the fire that's in her and everything about her. And it's just, it's so much fun to see. And you know what? She, she's just a really hard person not to want to root for. Everything she does, you can see she puts all of her effort and passion and all of herself into it. And it's just what you love to see in people. And you just want to you want to see those people succeed and do better. So it was awesome getting to know her. I can comfortably say that we have since become friends since this episode. And I'm looking forward to where everything goes from here for her and rooting for her every step of the way. Yeah, I cannot wait to see what she does next. It's going to be whatever it is. It's going to be good. You know that. And wherever, if she lands with somebody else in particular, they are going to be absolutely lucky to have her. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Dine One Six. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, smash that button, however you do in whatever podcasting listening program you're in. You can listen to us in all the podcasting platforms as well as YouTube. And also, if you're a listener, you like this episode, please, please, please shoot an email or a text or a social media message to friends and family who you think might like it, and just give them our website, dine16.com. That's the easiest way for people to just find the show and listen. That's going to really help us grow the show and continue to bring you new episodes. Speaking of new episodes, exciting announcement. In August, we're going to do a pizza month. We're going to launch extra episodes. We've got three episodes from people running or working in some of the best pizza places in Sacramento. We're going to schedule a couple more. We cannot wait to bring you extra episodes in August where we're going to talk all things pizza in Sacramento, which is turning into a pretty hot pizza town, I have to say. You can follow us on Instagram, at Dine16 is the handle. You can reach out to us on email, max at Dine16.com, or neil, N-E-I-L-L, at Dine16.com. Our opening and closing theme music are by my brother-in-law, Mark Owens. The Dine 16 is a production of the Hear Me Now studio in Citrus Heights, California. 
I cannot wait for our next episode, which is with someone who is one of the biggest names in her industry here in Sacramento in particular. We're really excited to have her. I'm not going to give it away yet. You'll have to keep an eye on that feed for when that episode comes out in a couple weeks. And until then, as always, eat something you love with someone you love. Thank you.